Peter, think happy thoughts. All you need is one happy thought, Peter. Just one happy thought and it'll make you fly. Oh, I got it. <laughs> Not being in this slingshot would make me very happy. to the Mad Max Minute, where we seem to have run out of ground in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 95, which begins with Auntie once again in hot pursuit of Master, and it ends with Jedediah turning off the plane. Ha! Huh. <laughs> Hanging out with us this week is a regular down at the Bulldog Cafe. It's Jim O'Kane of the Rocketeer Minute. Howdy, howdy. Welcome back. This is a nice uh, a nice return to a great minute. Lots of airplane stuff. Absolutely. There are so many questions I have for this situation. But before we get to all of the plane stuff, yes, we get a good chunk of a second of supplies and debris tumbling out of the plane. But we once again go back to the burrow and find that Auntie is kicking up all sorts of dust in front of Jedediah's front door. Ah. Because they have overcome the obstacle of whatever ravine that train bridge was going over and they have caught up. Not bad. It only took them like three minutes. We don't get how they did that. Like how, to, what, you know, yeah. mission, mission accomplished, but not important to the story, I guess. I had forgotten about the ravine, about mm -hmm. that big long bridge. But yeah, how'd they get over that? <laughs> We left them behind halfway through minute 91. It's been a while. I said three, I meant four minutes. And so what probably happened is that they had to go down a steep embankment or maybe find an area where the embankment wasn't quite so steep, cross whatever ravine the bridge was going over, and then get up the other side. And somewhere along the way, they picked somebody up, but they don't get revealed just yet. We have to oh, wait a few shots. the suspense is killing me. I know, me. it's so suspenseful. I was having in my head, Cameron, that they managed to find some kind of an evil Knievel-style ramp. <laughs> <laughs> and just over, you know, Snake River Canyon, the whole thing, and there they are. Now, you know, a little bumpy, but back in front of the, our favorite uh, white horse <laughs> once again. <laughs> Do you think the train tracks were wide enough that they could have driven over on the train tracks? Australia does have the same four feet, eight and a half inches that uh, we do for a, a track width. And since most cars are built that way, I guess it would fit on top of the rails if they did, uh, if they if they managed to each balance on there. It'd be really tricky, but I'm willing to bet that some of them could have pulled it off. Maybe some of the smaller ones. In this post-apocalyptic nightmare universe, how do you do a front-end alignment? I'm just wondering what kind of uh, <laughs> auto facilities there are out there. They do seem to be remarkably well-repaired, um, considering all the potholes and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, there must be a sect of wastelanders out there that can just align the front end of a vehicle by feel. Like they walk around the front end of the car and they're holding their hands up against the tires and the frame and they're just like... <laughs> I need to adjust this. Yes, the tribe of Camber. Give me a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> they pray to the almighty Sears catalog yeah. <laughs> and its automotive section. Bring me the F7815s now. Yeah. Uh. I was noticing that the Blackfinger is in Auntie's 
truck with her, Mm -hmm. which seems like a rather prominent position to be in. So do you think he is a prominent member of society? This head mechanic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's Mr. Goodwrench, basically. He's Yeah. yeah. I didn't get that sense back when we saw him... Schlepping around Underworld? Yeah. I didn't really get that sense that he was respected or prominent or had any sort of authority. But now that the structure of Bartertown is starting to fall apart a bit, it seems more obvious. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that he would be riding with Auntie because he was on the caboose when it disconnected from the train. He was there right underneath her as they were drifting away. So when the vehicle driven by one of Auntie's guards came up to get her, he would naturally hop right on. I haven't watched the behind the scenes on all this, but I was just wondering, you know, obviously uh, Tina Turner, there's no rack and pinion attached to that steering wheel that she's got. Where is the driver in that vehicle? I'm assuming that it's somewhere like low down inside the center of the unit. Do do you know anything where how that was constructed? From everything we've seen, that spot at the front of the car is actually where you drive. Hmm. She actually has steering capabilities? Mm-hmm. Wow. The problem with that vehicle is that it's very back heavy. There's not a lot of weight in the front. And so as you're trying to steer, there's not a lot of force pushing down on those steering wheels. Uh-huh. All of your weight is in the drive. So it's not something that stays very straight very easily on its own. So all of those swerving motions that she's doing with her hands, it's not just pretend driving. It's, I need to keep this thing straight, so I need to constantly adjust it. (laughs) A lot of Tokyo Drift in the Outback. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I realize that this is probably slightly sped up, but they always seem to be driving dead on into the wind. And uh, yeah, Auntie Anthony isn't wearing goggles. So it must be... (laughs) It's been quite a quite an adventure getting all that dust blowing up. It's remarkable. Every time I see one of these raiders or even Auntie herself, because there is nothing in front of Auntie, driving around at high speed in these dusty environments without any sort of eye covering. Yeah, and the and the ca- the camera car is right in front of them, so it's got to be kicking up at you know as fast as these cars are going. The camera car is in front of them, uh, swinging around and blowing more stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only hope is that it's on a big like a Chapman crane or something hanging off the side and there's some major counterbalance so at least they're not getting you know gravel thrown up (laughs) there's a piece of wardrobe that auntie is wearing around her neck that is actually designed to be worn like a visor and it's made of that same chainmail type material so probably little ringlets of iron or steel or whatever yeah but it's meant to be worn in front of the face the whole idea is that it acts as a visor so that the dust gets deflected by the chainmail and you can still very much see through it but they don't use it because it probably wasn't transparent enough that she could see where she was going yeah or see see the director waving cut cut or something it's just mm-hmm. a little a little <laughs> difficult but yeah i guess it would look like uh, the residents of SETI Alpha 5 uh, at the beginning of uh, Wrath of Khan, they all mm-hmm. had that, those big uh, masks and burka-like decor. I do like the uh, preponderance of cow catchers. I'm, a, I'm very much a, an antique uh, steam engine uh, maven. <laughs> and just the size, of the, the size of the cow catchers on the far right, I don't know who's driving that one, but uh, it just the car is entirely cow catcher. You know, you just mm-hmm. imagine what it was built to bounce off of it. Uh, very much a uh, killer robot style of, <laughs> of uh, ironwork. It very much reminds me. Now, Julia, 
you're more of a student of history than I am. Which one of those old American steamships down in Virginia that had that Civil War battle had the steeped angular sides? Was that the Lincoln or the Monitor? Do you remember? Oh my gosh, I have no earthly idea. Well, that's why we have I appreciate that you thought I might know that. But I really haven't the faintest clue. I, I know, I know, what you, I know what you mean. Yeah, the the uh, one was just a flat top, and the other one had the had the steep sides. Is that? And it, it it looks like it's made out of iron. I mean, it looks like wrought iron. It just. I do wonder as we start to get some really good looks at all of these vehicles over the last few minutes, how much of this design had an actual purpose, and how much of it was just aesthetic, not on George Miller's part on the part of the individuals who own them. I need to interrupt real quick and correct myself. Merrimack versus the Monitor in the Battle of Hampton Roads. Yeah. March 9th, 1862. The Monitor went went down off the coast of North Carolina, and since that was the flat top one, the other one has to be the Merrimack. The Merrimack has to be the one that looks like the... Uh, car that we're looking at, I think. Mm-hmm. I just I, I remember seeing the old you know Robert Ballard oh. pictures of the Monitor. So that the uh, yeah. Merrimack is that the one that's like a proto submarine? Uh, In that most of it is underwater. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's um yeah almost like a Hunley, but, but it, yeah it wasn't it, it 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 just had a very low profile and basically they uh, memory serves they just parked parked across from each other for about two or three hours and bounced cannonballs and it was kind of a draw um early on in the war was it, it was it was wasn't it like at the end of it was like at the end of 1861 it was very very early or maybe the beginning of 62 but the uh, uh yeah they were it was where modern warfare was going to go and the you know the end of the end of wood but you know and and thinking about this is if if you were battling other other gangs of people you'd want to have that low profile that would deflect a shield or deflect other projectiles coming at you once again i need to correct myself because the merrimack is the name of the steam-powered ironclad wardship built by the confederate states navy during the first year of the american civil war it was taken and changed to be the CSS Virginia when it became the angular-sided ironclad ship. Okay, so it was the Virginia when it was in the Confederate Navy. Versus the Monitor, which was the Union. Yeah, so. which would make sense because Merrimack is a it's a river in New Hampshire. I don't think a Confederate... <laughs> Wait, no. You're killing me. I know, I'm, I'm killing myself. <laughs> We're going to get history right if it kills us. It was the CSS Virginia... Versus the USS Monitor, right? But but the CSS Virginia used to be the USS Merrimack. Yes, they were both, yes. they were both Union Navy ships. But when when the when the Civil War broke out, the Confederates took took the Merrimack and renamed her the Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is what happens when brother fights against brother. Yeah, a hundred years later. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's so much that you've got every, any Civil War battle that happened in Northern Virginia or in uh, Maryland, the Southerner, the Southerners will call it by the name of the city that it was fought in, and the uh, Northerners will call it by the nearby river that happened. So that's why you have the battle of, you know, the first and second battle of Manassas to the south is known as the mm-hmm. first and second battles of Bull Run to the north or uh, Sharpsburg. Southerners call the Battle of Sharpsburg the Battle of Sharpsburg, but the North called it uh, the Battle of the Antietam because it was over, you know, it was crossing the Antietam River in uh, in Maryland. So you, <laughs> it's, oh, everybody it's wants just, to name it something else. So. It's just awful. Just I can't keep any of it straight. The important thing is. 
The car on the far right side of the frame around second 15 has high angled side that reminded me of the CSS Virginia. And that is what I was trying to say. I'm picturing everybody listening to the podcast that's, you know, on a on a treadmill. I said, finally. <laughs> and now they're all going to have to go home, plug in their uh, plug in their DVDs. And oh, yeah, there it is. Min- yep. Minute 95, oh, yeah. 21 seconds in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even the most important vehicle in that shot because there is a big old ute truck buggy thing whatever you want to call it inside that vehicle in the center of the frame is none other than the unkillable iron bar who after falling off that bridge is back <laughs> was this supposed to be a big reveal are any of them supposed to be big reveals i'm not sure I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about this moment where we see that Ironbar is, in fact, driving this ute. I mean, it doesn't surprise... Well, of course, it doesn't surprise me. I've seen this movie a hundred times now. But I don't think it ever surprised me. Of course he survived. Everything he's been through up till now has just prepared him for falling off of that bridge. I feel desensitized to his exactly. deaths that we exactly. see. I'm just amazed that his uh, broom handle that's holding the uh, the, the the head, the voodoo head, uh, it never broke. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> it's very it's very sturdy no matter what no matter what he goes through, it's still attached. Knowing how ridiculous this movie is, he probably fell off that bridge, pulled some sort of ripcord in that leather girdle that he wears, and then that head probably started spinning like a helicopter. <laughs> And he glided down to the ground. <laughs> or there's a, there's a parachute packed in the back of the skull and that just pops out. <laughs> uh, he just got it back in time to finish packing it. Right. If we're going to insist that Iron Bar is this unkillable, we might as well go whole hog with the ridiculousness of it. <laughs> I was going to say maybe he fell in a bush or a tree or something like that. And that broke his fall. But nope. let's go all in on this. Might as well. You probably have covered this in earlier minutes, but I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite resident of Bartertown? Oh, mine is definitely Dr. Dealgood. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Gosh, you know, we have not asked that question, and I would have to think about it. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe at the end of the minute, we'll get back to it. Yeah. Do you have a particular favorite, Jim? Um... I'm not sure. I'm going to have... I'll have to get back to you at the end of the the minute. Though, Iron Bar really, you know, I just... He's like, he's the guy that everybody boos when you're at, you know, uh, wrestling matches. Like, ooh, <laughs> just, he's very, I, I like the way he sticks to task. Mm-hmm. He always, <laughs> he's very, very devoted, very, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't let anything uh, interrupt him. So I think he's, I, I, I admire that in his persistence. He's just yeah. on and on and on. <laughs> I was not on the Iron Bar train at the onset of this movie well, because I yeah <laughs> well I was still very much in the Wes camp from Road Warrior. Oh okay. But I will admit Iron Bar has grown on me as this movie has gone on. All right, I figured out mine. Okay. It's Pig Killer. Okay. Oh, He's okay. just so opposite what he should be. He has been sentenced to life in hard labor, Mm -hmm. and he still meets a new person and made a friend. Yeah. And feels some sense of loyalty to that friend. He still finds some reason, even if it's psychotic, 
to smile. And even now, last minute, he is bleeding out. He's gonna die if he doesn't get help. And he's still, like, goofy grinning in the background. And still moving forward with this escape plan that he just made up on the fly. And he has faith and believes in Max. He can feel changes coming and he's just ready to roll with it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. Yes, there's... <laughs> There really isn't a bad character. You know, there's not a character you're like, yeah, that's not, he, he doesn't really add anything to the, to the role. <laughs> but um, it, it's just interesting to see where the, where the role had, you know, and they wouldn't be as, like, the good guys wouldn't be as good if the bad guys weren't so bad. It, it, mm-hmm. It's a nice, nice contrast and stuff. I mean, Iron Bar is just a, he's a real rat fan. I mean, you know, he, he, uh, he killed Blaster and he's, you know, and he's the one that was, uh, wasn't he the one that, that sent uh, Max off to exile? Didn't he put the... He's the one that put yes. the head on Max's shoulders and then yeah, slapped yeah. him and in the back yeah. of the horse. So he's and like, he enjoyed it. He's like the king's hand, you know, like Game of Thrones. He's like, he does <laughs> what, Anthony, what Anthony needs. He gets it He gets it done. And that's... It's, it's, uh, it's such an admirable yet horrible thing that he does. You know, he's like, he's the fixer. And uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's in it to the bitter end. Speaking of moving towards the bitter end, right around the 21 second mark, we cut back to the air truck and it is just moving along. There's nothing around it. It's just the plane right smack dab center of the frame with the brown earth below it, the bright blue sky above it. And it's just tootling along, not really gaining any air or anything like that. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look very air. I mean, it's like bumblebee thing. It's just got the big it's 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 parked there not not ready to rotate doesn't have enough airspeed mm-hmm. so you keep thinking well is he gonna pull pull it up and, and and watching him out there in the dust that one of the big things in uh, aircraft worrying about aircraft especially when taking off is something called uh, foreign object debris mm-hmm. and the idea of flying this thing out there and hopefully it's all dust because if there's anything you know like gravel or anything you could knock up a, a rock or a piece of, uh, you know, s- some kind of a, a broken branch or anything like that and throw it through the, the fuel tank or knock into the wing. So it's, this would be one of the scariest parts of, of any flight, especially, you know, just driving on, a, on an unpaved, un, <laughs> it's really not even graded I mean, other than by the wind. Yeah. Flying. I'm, I'm assuming that this was on a, uh, on a carefully manicured uh, dirt runway that they they cleared carefully before they started filming it. But still, it's just kind of a, a nerve wracking thing watching it. Certainly. They were definitely helped by the natural landscape being out in the moon plains outside Cooper Petty yeah. because it's not a true salt flat, but it is the former location of an inland sea. Okay. S- similar to our Bonneville flats. Yeah. But this specific location in the sense of the movie has a very interesting geographical quirk to it. And as we cut inside the plane, Jedediah Jr. is the first one to notice and he yells for his dad to do something. And the giant mitt of a hand <laughs> of Bruce Spence grabs the entire side of Jedediah Jr.'s pith helmet and pushes him aside so that Bruce Spence's face can fill the frame. And then there's this lovely thing that happens. Bruce Spence reacts to something and the engine makes a sound in conjunction with the reaction. It really was a nice moment. Yeah. And and picture it, you know, filmed for a uh, watching in a theater and you see Bruce Spence's face filling up a 40 foot screen. And that's (laughs) all you're seeing. And one of the things about being when you're uh, cinematography 101, 
when you have a close-up, you limit information because all you're seeing is a face. Mm-hmm. So all you're seeing here is the reactions of Jedi Junior and Jedi Senior that they're seeing something terrifying. And the audience at this point, up till, until we get to the next scene, doesn't know what they're seeing. It's like, Dad, look out. You know, um, but we're not seeing what it is. So all we have to go on building our own emotions is to follow their lead. So it's like, this isn't going to be fun. And finally, cutting back to the wider shot where we notice that there happens to be a cliff that they're about to go over. They've run out of land. It's ridiculous. There's just nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's plenty of land. It's just at a different altitude. (laughs) Right. It's one of those things where you've got to wonder, oh, what could be worse than a horde of vehicles chasing you? A lack of runway is probably that thing. And the the idea of we're seeing a featureless plane. So it's this kind of a thing coming up where all of a sudden you see a cliff. There was there was no clue given to the audience that, oh, by the way, <laughs> it's not a plane, it's a ravine. Yeah. So uh, just, yeah, it is just a little little gotcha in the middle of the whole thing. So, and literally a cliffhanger here. So, Jim, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have the answer to this or we might have to figure it out together, but is there a particular reason that the plane couldn't just fly off the edge of the cliff? Thank you. I was going to ask the same thing. Ah. Uh, Yes, it's the Bernoulli principle. The uh, simple matter is that you need to have enough wind going over the wing, give, provi- providing lift where the lift is greater than the drag. If you don't have enough speed, the plane isn't going to lift off, off the off the runway. What you mm-hmm. need to do, there's, I wish Hal were here, he, he knows this better <laughs> than I do. When you're flying, there's different speeds as you're, as you're heading down the runway. Um, you get to a point called V1. That's where you officially run out of runway you have you you can no longer stop and you know stay on the ground you were going to you were going to crash into the fence at the end of the runway or in this case over the ravine at the end of the runway uh, but you're trying to get up to a speed called v rotate so mm-hmm. that when you get to that speed uh, the airspeed uh, the speed of the wind going over your wings is enough to lift the weight of your plane up off the ground and you will you know your altimeter will start moving clockwise and uh, rotating means you're rotating the uh, uh, the the front of the the front of the plane up toward the sky. Uh, and so, if you have enough speed, when you rotate the plane, your wheels will lift up off the ground, and you'll head into the air. And they never got to the V rotate speed. Uh, fortunately, they never got to V one speed either because they were able to <laughs> turn turn around. If the if V one was there and V rotate wasn't there. Uh, They'd be down in the down in a pile of rubble at the you know look, it would look at like the end of a Roadrunner cartoon, so uh, yeah that's that's where they're at. So now they went back to uh, park and <laughs> they'll have to do it all over again to get up to V one and then V rotate, only going the other way since it's the only direction there is any runway. So what that tells me is that they didn't have enough time for the engine to speed up enough to pull the plane into that V one speed. Well, the engine could be running at full throttle. I mean, one of the first problems that they had was they didn't... It, it's a matter of airspeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the engine can be running at full throttle, but if it was... You remember, it was overloaded. It had all those big nets full of stuff earlier on. Right. And it was getting there, but they just ran out of runway before they could get to that uh, that speed. Gotcha. I didn't look up what, what an air truck is... Uh, what their V1 speed is, but I'm assuming that it's pretty low. It seems to have a... Uh, a very high wing, so that means that it does it doesn't require a lot of lift. I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe fifty five to sixty miles an hour. 
Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a lot. If Hal is listening to this, he's probably yelling, no, no, it's 65. What's wrong? You know, so, uh, <laughs> somewhere out there, expect lots of mail on your, uh, on, your, on your Facebook page. I certainly hope so. But yeah, it's it, it it's probably somewhere in the fifties or sixties, and uh, and they'll they'll pull you know you just have to pull up very gently to uh, once you once you're at that speed because uh, Bernoulli's principle does the rest, and uh, off you go. But it's not you know it's it's not there, and and then there's other I mean there's other there's other factors that happen. Um, a lot of it's dependent on temperature, a hot day. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say it's over 100 degrees. The air, if you think about, you know, think about little molecules of air bouncing around, thanks to Brownian motion. As air gets hotter, the air gets thinner because the molecules are bouncing into each other and they're moving further apart from each other. So without all that air to cause this pressure change and, and cause you to lift, uh, it makes it harder for the wings. It's like it's like you're already at altitude, so it's kind of hard to pick up off the ground if there's no wind to like cut through to. Mm for the for the Bernoulli principle to operate. And I'm guessing that if they had a tailwind, that would be detrimental? Uh, yeah. Gen- generally, yeah. you want to be flying into the wind. It's, uh, it, it's uh, I mean, if you fly on a kite, it's really hard. It's really hard to f- fly a kite when you're running downwind. So, I mean, if you just feel that pull, and the faster you're running, the more wind is going onto that surface and, and giving you lift. So, uh, it, that's just it. It's just a simple matter of speed and not enough wind going in their direction. See, this would have been an excellent instance for Mr. Skyfish to tug at Max's shoulder and be like, hey, we're headed in the wrong direction. We got a tailwind. And Max would look down at Skyfish and be like, how do you know about tailwinds or anything like that? And Skyfish would be like, uh, I'm the guy who hangs out with a kite all the time. That's my thing. <laughs> I'm Mr. Skyfish. Yeah, I see. Uh, Max could have tied a big rope. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Put a, put a rope on the car and we'll see what happens. But that's uh, that's exactly how gliders work. It, you have to impart airspeed so that it goes over the wings. One thing that is just even more mind-boggling than the idea of them suddenly running out of runway is the fact that as the plane gets turned around, a vehicle speeds up to them and stops just short of going over the cliff. And who should hop out of that vehicle, much to everybody's surprise, it's Screwloose wearing one of the guard's headdresses. I don't know how he cut up. I don't know where he came from. He just seems to pop out of nowhere. It's another instance of that Emperor's New Groove situation where, by all accounts, he should not have been able to catch up. But he did. Ahead of Auntie and the rest of her fleet. Way ahead. Yeah. Well, it, must have been the, it must have been the shortcut. Or maybe he was the first one to try out that uh, that Evil Knievel ramp that they had built. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just kept going and going. I'm wondering what happened to the driver of his car. Oh, he's still in the car. Oh, he is? Oh, yeah. You can see the guard that Screwloose knocked out with the frying pan half hanging out the passenger side of the truck. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. okay. Whatever Screwloose did to him, he's been hit hard enough that he's not going to get up again. Oh, well, I was worried that Screwloose kicked him out of the car and at going a certain speed and that could possibly have killed him. Well, I'm certain that Max is going to drag this guy out of the car before he hops into it, but that'll be for Friday. <laughs> I do like uh, the devotion of Screwless to his uh, frying pan, and he <laughs> still ca- carries with him. I mean, never, never leave it behind. Oh, absolutely. That is now his official weapon to wield. Yeah, it's like Thor's hammer. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
and it's very useful. I do like that Screwloose has taken a trophy from his conquest. He took the headdress. I just wonder if this is the start of a dark path for Screwloose now that he has defeated another warrior and taken his trophy if he's going to insist on continuing that line of activity but we'll never really know it's just something to suppose i guess nobody's questioning you know his his appearance like how did you get here what it's there's no time to request that we just need another 150 pounds on this plane that we can't take off with (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not time for questioning it's time for max and savannah to run over grab him by the suspenders and drag him back to the plane and as they throw him into the hold we pan over in front of the plane and the engine just stops which is not really something you want to have happen in this situation and we cut inside the cockpit and jedediah jr and senior just sitting there looking away at what's ahead of them a great family portrait too i mean again another representation of Beautiful cinematography. They're per- they're perfectly lit, nicely framed, and just gosh, if they weren't facing certain doom, you'd swear that could look good on somebody's mantelpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So we cut down to Max. This is very close to the end of the minute, but he's looking up at the cockpit with an expression that says to me, "Why are we stopping? What's going on? I need to investigate." Which is exactly what he decides to do as he pulls back and starts walking around the tail end. There, you definitely get the sense that Max is concerned. They're running for their lives at this instance, and stopping is not something that he wants to see happen. And doing a lot of rapid calculations of what what are my options here? How do, how do I save the most amount of people in this? I'm sure he's thinking ahead to perhaps we're going to have to take that truck. How many people can I fit on that truck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe looking at the mental map of wh- where they're at. Can he take the truck down into the ravine? Can they split up and meet up later? What's you mm-hmm. know, Splitting up worked in the last movie. Yeah, that's true. But in this instance, it might be a little tricky. There are just so many of them and so few of Max and the Waiting Ones and Jedediah and all them. The odds are very intimidating. And we are not so much caught between a rock and a hard place. We're more caught between a hard place and a worrying lack of rock. <laughs> <laughs> if I can be so ridiculous as to say that. Well, and yes, and an army of armored vehicles all looking like uh, Civil War battleships coming at them. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> Boy, if there was any one subject that we never have to touch on again. Oh, you know, you that say one. that. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. An interesting um, parallel to the subject we were talking about earlier with the two different ships and the Merrimack that was captured by the South and then was called the Virginia. It's exactly the same thing that happened with this particular truck that Screwloose just pulled up on. Mm-hmm. It did belong to the North and now it belongs to the South. I do see it as a bit of poetic justice that Max began the movie with this truck. It was taken from him by Jedediah. And now here at the end of the movie, he is leaving the plane flown by Jedediah to once again reclaim his camel truck. There's a nice bit of symmetry there. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very much so. (sighs) But we'll worry about all of that reclaiming of vehicles on Friday. Jim, we hope you'll come back and join us then. I certainly will. So keep an ear out for that. Max will find out exactly why Jedediah has shut off the plane. And despite his protests and assertions that they cannot take off, Max will assure them that the runway will be clear enough when the time comes. So for all of that, come back at the end of the week. 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 95 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Everybody